welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Weird Comics History, where we bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays. Hopefully, hopefully, more hopefully more often soon. That's right. That's the intention <laughs> from here on out. Uh, you can find us every or some Tuesdays on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and put, subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Telegraph Transmissions from the 19th Century. Uh, so this finally, folks, we are getting down to a topic we have threatened to cover for since the very beginning, really. Uh, since the start, yeah. Since the very start. As a matter of fact, I just want to open up to say that when Chris and I first did this show, I said there are two topics we have to cover because they're going to inform everything else that we talk about. And that's that was the Comics Code, which was the first thing we ever did, the first five-part thing, and Direct Market. And so now we're getting to it two years later, finally. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time cooking, but we, you know, it's, it's important to understand if you're going to understand comics history in the comics business. Uh, this is something we got to get into. This is going to be two parts, so we're going to start right now with not the direct market, the newsstand model, which is the thing that preceded the direct market, uh, What where we used to buy our comics. Uh, it's worked essentially the same way for over 100 years. What happens is a retailer requests certain titles from distributors. In the case of magazines and other periodicals that come out weekly or less frequently, They'll order a specific number, but for daily periodicals like newspapers, the distributor might set that number delivered based on what we're going to talk about very soon. Uh, The distributor picks their bundles up, usually from larger distributors who collate product that comes directly from the printing presses. And whatever is unsold can be returned to the distributor for a full credit applied to the next invoice. Uh, Initially, the entire thing, the entire periodically had to be returned. Today, just the front covers will suffice, and the vendors expected to destroy what remains. Uh, we'll get into this. And this is, the distributor picks up those returns and takes them back, and it's, that's what they use to adjust the quantities for future deliveries, especially on the daily newspapers and stuff. You know, based, you know, if I only got one return, they obviously could use some more. If I got 50 returns, I'm going to cut their order. And uh, that credit for returns applies all the way back up to the publisher. So everybody gets their money back all the way to the publisher who has to foot the bill. Certainly. Now we have to ask the question, why are periodicals returnable in the first place? For this, we got to go back to the 19th century. Uh, newspapers could be read for free at pubs, bars, barbershops, or uh, purchased at licensed newsstands or from newsboys hawking papers on the street. Now we got to clarify that uh, these newsboys or newsies they weren't neighborhood kids with paper routes like 12-year-old Chris. Uh, <laughs> yeah. These were homeless children, and they depended on their newspaper income in order to survive. Now, these kids were often grouped into gangs that would viciously defend their turf, you know, the neighborhoods in which they'd peddle their papers. Because, again, most people could read these for free if they wanted to. That's right. It was it was very much a cutthroat business. You know, you're really trying Absolutely. to push these papers on people. <laughs> Now, the way it worked in New York City, and similarly in other cities across the country, is that kids would buy a bundle of 100 newspapers for 50 cents. Now, at a nickel apiece, for the most popular newspapers, three cents uh, for smaller outfits, they stood to make five bucks in total. But the newsies had to eat what they didn't sell. Uh, There were no refunds for unsold newspapers. Uh, the biggest newspapers would have several editions per day. You know, that would be the, you know, extra, extra uh, that the uh, newsies were always yelling about uh, because uh, a newsboy only had a few hours to ditch their bundle because there were other editions on the way. That's right. Yeah, you didn't have all day to sell this thing. You had to get it out 
before the afternoon edition, before the, the evening afternoon edition, and evening, and evening, yep. late evening. Uh, so let's talk about the Spanish-American War. That's a nice little segue. This was, so. this was a war between <laughs> Spain and the United States that kicked off in 1898, larger over the, largely over the independence of Cuba, but involving some other territories as well. It lasted about four months, and it was mostly fomented by William Randolph Hearst of the New York Evening Journal, who was quick with sensationalized headlines and loose facts to stir American passions against Spain. Uh, Joseph Pulitzer of the Morning World had to follow suit, and those two papers were in hot competition and, in fact, face each other across a square in Manhattan. They were really facing off. Uh, the Spanish-American War spiked the sales of these newspapers in particular. They were already, like we said, heavily competitive. Indeed, the slur, you might have heard this, yellow journalism, which refers to these attention-grabbing headlines of the time, it actually comes from these two newspapers battling over ownership of illustrator R.F. Outcult's The Yellow Kid comic strip, which is the first American comic strip. Uh, but that's a whole different episode. We're, we're going to sure. we're gonna get, we're gonna get back to the Spanish-American War. So while sales were high, the Journal and the World raised the price of their newspaper bundles from 50 cents to 60 cents, which was fine with the Newsies, provided they were selling out their copies. It was still quite a high rate of return. Uh, when the Spanish-American War ended, sales fell and newspaper publishers returned the price of their bundles to 50 cents, except for the Journal and the World, still the two most popular papers. And uh, the newsboys, they were not thrilled about that. So what do you do in that situation? Maybe you uh, maybe you go on strike. We strike here! <laughs> on July 21st, 1899, a large number of New York City newsboys refused to distribute the world and the journal. The strikers demonstrated across the Brooklyn Bridge for several days, effectively bringing traffic to a standstill. By stopping trucks and tearing up papers on the spot, they also kept newspapers from getting into New England. Newsboys also appealed to the public to stop buying the world in the journal. Joseph Pulitzer attempted to hire grown men to do the newsboys' job, but they were sympathetic to the boys and refused to do it. The news peddlers held rallies that would draw up to 5,000 people. Uh, the popular story is that they came to hear a kid going by the name Kid Blink, a, a charismatic young fella. Uh, his real name was Louis Ballet, or Balletti, perhaps. And he's been named as the leader of the Newsboys during the strike in recent years. Uh, he was blind in one eye and wore an eye patch, which, uh, you know, might might be the reason for his name. Yeah. Uh, and people pegged him at around 14 years old. I wonder if he was the inspiration for Bazooka Joe, huh, maybe? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> now, but there is actually some dispute as to whether Kid Blink really organized the strike and rallies or if the World and Journal gave him lots of copy due to his fitting the stereotypical bill almost exactly. Uh, they really enjoyed writing out his comments and other people's comments in this thick Brooklynese accent. Uh, one newspaper account has him saying at a rally, and I'm going to try to read this as phonetically as I can. Friends and fellow workers, this is a time which tries the hearts of men. This is the time when we's got to stick together like glue. We know what we want, and we'll get it even if we is blind. Uh, we do know that the boys elected a newsboy strike committee that consisted of Kid Blink, sometimes referred to as a as Blind Diamond for some reason. Uh, he was the chief organizer at first. Dave Simmons, who was a boy prize fighter, was the president. Little Mikey as the orator. Jim Gaiety, Young Monix, Barney Peanuts, Crutch Morris, and Crazy Arborn who was not a newsboy at all, but sold pretzels and sympathized with them, <laughs> Scabuch and Abe Newman. But this strike committee restructured itself after Dave and Kidd were voted out, for fear they had betrayed the newsboys by being too cozy with Hearst. 
This included electing a grown-up as the president. Maybe we'll get to that. And newsboy Racetrack Higgins was the vice president installed after they were kicked out. These names, I, I could just <laughs> read these awesome. names all day. Uh, from uh, from most sympathetic newspaper accounts of the day, Racetrack Higgins was the galvanizing force of this strike, not Kid Blink or others that have been named. Though, though Hearst's journal named the adult Jack Sullivan as the one in charge of arbitration, this appears not to be true. Sullivan was a boxer, and, and not the famous bare-fisted boxer Sullivan, uh, who taught kids on the Lower East Side to fight and had a good rapport with them. He would eventually go on to be William Randolph Hearst's personal bodyguard, which might explain how he, Kid Blink, and Dave Simmons, the kid prize fighter, got mixed up altogether. When some newsstand stopped selling the journal and the world in solidarity with the newsboys, Hearst and Pulitzer uh, saw the writing on the wall. The strike ended about a month later on August 12, 1899. The World and the Journal would not move from their 60 cents per bundle price, but they did instate a new policy, which was they would buy back any unsold stock, which mitigated the seller's risk, and uh, thus returns are born. Of course, the Newsboy strike was romanticized in the 1992 Disney musical Newsies, which uh, neither of us have seen, right? No, and I have no intention uh, of watching it now, but it's uh, it's I know true. it's a popular uh, thing with some people. It's a so, thing that existed, yeah. So that's what that's actually all about, if you weren't, if you didn't know if it was a real historical moment, it is. Uh, now to expand a little bit on the News 10 distribution model. There's a lot more to it than what uh, we said in the beginning. In the earliest days of periodicals, they were shipped directly from the printer to newsstands or to brokers like Newsboys for local sale. As the reach of these periodicals grew to national and then worldwide scope, new methods of distribution obviously would become necessary, led to the creation of larger distributors, first on a larger local level than on the national level. Or a reader could purchase a subscription and have the magazine or newspaper delivered directly to their home, and that was often handled by the publisher, sometimes fulfilled right from the bindery or through the main office, sometimes the secretary would handle subscriptions. Uh, I know when you look at the indicia for some comics, you see the subscription rate, it's like three copies, you know, so you know, mm. not a big deal. They could handle that. Uh, plus, they were folding them and putting them in envelopes. Anyway, that's no, we'll get to that later. Uh, over <laughs> time, a system was created where national distributors allocated magazines and newspapers for independent distributor wholesalers, regional companies that ship products and newsstands, pharmacies, and other points of purchase. Independent distributor wholesalers, with few exceptions, held complete monopolies over their districts, and individual business practices affected the availability of plate and placement of periodicals. Now, whenever distribution of any kind is mentioned, someone will invariably say that it's controlled by the mafia. But it's uh, never clarified as to how or why. It's just, uh, <laughs> one of those things that's eh, the mafia. Mm. Now, various mafias, uh, Jewish, Italian, and Irish, would assume almost total control of trucking goods in the 1920s. They used these otherwise reputable distributors to smuggle alcohol during Prohibition. These truckers are organized under the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, otherwise known as the Teamsters Union. Formed in 1903 by the merger of the Team Drivers International Union and the Teamsters National Union, uh, Team Drivers and Teamsters are the folks that controlled the horses of the day, Uh, the union now represents a diverse membership of blue-collar and professional workers in both the public and private sectors. So, the Mafia made inroads with this union, and so started to exert some control over trucking throughout America. 
The Teamsters became terribly corrupt, which, uh, you know, makes sense when you come to think about it. Think about the opportunities that were presented to the Uh, criminal-minded. It'd be silly to pass it up. Really, it's almost too sweet (laughs) a plum. Uh, For instance, in 1929, the Teamsters and unions in Chicago even approached gangster Roger Tohey and asked for his protection from Al Capone and his Chicago outfit. In Kansas City, corrupt Teamsters locals spent years seeking bribes, embezzling money, and engaging in extensive uh, extortion and labor rackets, as well as beatings, vandalism, and even bombings in an attempt to control the construction and trucking industries. The problem was so serious that the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field held hearings on the issue beginning in 1957. They sure loved those hearings in the 50s, didn't they? (laughs) They did. Uh, These hearings are colloquially known as the McClellan Hearings, named for Senator John McClellan, chairman of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Detroit-based James Jimmy Riddlehoffa rose to become president of the Teamsters Union in 1958. In 1941, however, he employed members of the mafia to break up a turf battle happening in his home city between Teamsters and non-union truckers. The mob did him this favor, and now he owed them. From this point on, the mafia essentially owned the Teamsters outright, right there. Uh, While Hoffa rose in popularity and power, organized crime used the Teamsters' pension fund like their own piggy bank, employing it primarily to fund the building of the city of Las Vegas, among, we have to assume, other financial pursuits. Hoffa had faced criminal charges since 1957, but none of them stuck until 1964. He was sentenced to eight years in Chattanooga, Tennessee jail for, or prison for bribing a grand juror. While in jail, he was convicted of fraud of, for pilfering the Teamsters pension fund and got another five years tacked onto his sentence. Yeah, the story of the Teamsters Union is definitely a fascinating story in and of itself. However, for the purposes of, of our show here, the short of it is federal restrictions on the Teamsters and other unions in the 1960s forced a certain degree of transparency, but did not get organized crime out of trucking and the distribu- distribution of goods. Indeed, by now, Chinese, Russian, and other Eastern European and Asian mob families moved in on some of the vacant rackets left in the wake of the government's scrutiny. In 1971, Jimmy Hoffa was pardoned by Richard Nixon, and, uh, you know, no one uh, quite knows what happened yeah, to that fellow. what huh? happened to that guy. He just yeah, he Part of a bridge? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something about a jet stadium? I don't know. Something weird. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> no, initially, all unsold periodicals, including comic books, had to be returned in full to the distributor. This would happen during the regular delivery. The uh, local distributor would deliver an order, then deduct the cost of any issues being returned. They would then Use, uh, they would then return those unsold copies to the regional distributor, who would then issue a credit at that level. Then that distributor would get a credit directly from the publisher or from a larger distributor. Uh, ultimately, it all does go back to the publisher, though. Mm. Uh, by the late 1940s, independent distributors bristled at returning entire magazines and newspapers, so they were allowed to tear the covers off and return only those. In the 1950s, many distributors allowed the return of part of the cover, provided that it included the title and date. Uh, This created a secondary market for coverless magazines, paperbacks, and, yes, even comic books. Oh, yeah. If you sometimes in the uh, in those cheapo bins, you might see some coverless I, comics all, uh, from all the time, or even that's, <laughs> absolutely that's a common one. Flea markets too. You get a whole bunch of oh co- sure. It's a great way to, to fill in your collection story-wise, though. If you yes. if you just want to know what happened. 
Absolutely. Now, in the 1960s, most national distributors further scaled back their return requirements, allowing affidavits, written claims of how many copies of a given title went unsold. Uh, the point of purchase was then expected to destroy the unsold copies. Uh, didn't always work. This I mean, way. you got to imagine this. Like they're, they're just, they're just saying, free money at that point. I, yeah, I'm returning this many copies and then turn around and sell them for you know half price. It's it's pocket, beautiful. Yep. Uh, so, as you could imagine, the number of returns increased and the secondary market swelled. <laughs> uh, in many cases, comics publishers cited 75 to 80 percent returns from newsstands, and still they remain profitable, we assume, since no publishers ever closed down explicitly for reasons of returns. Uh, this indicates how incredibly cheap comic books were to produce at the time and ship, and that interior ads really did shoulder a lot of their cost. Uh, they were not depending on these newsstand sales. I think that was just a, uh, you know, a extra on top of their profit. So uh, eventually, partly due to Marvel and DC's complaints, distributors would go back to the practice of returning covers torn off of unsold comics and periodicals. So I think that's where they are at today. You still have have to tear off the whole cover. Um, Now, there's a lot of comics floating around here, a lot of, you know, uh, unsold, you know, product meant for return. So... Uh, we, we finally meet a new breed of person, the comic book collector. Now, in the early days of comic books, they were considered entirely disposable. Uh, one reason Golden Age comics were so ex- are so expensive today is that many of them were pulp for World War II munitions or just simply thrown away, a fact which probably increased their sales. Uh, I, people sure. did sometimes buy extra paper so they could put it to the war effort later. Uh, by the 1950s, the first comic books fans and collectors began to assert themselves. These first fans who wished to collect and preserve their comics really had their work cut out for them. Uh, here's the scene was many newsstands had a random assortment of comic books and might contain only one piece of a multi-part story, or they wouldn't find consecutive issues in a series in the same place consecutively. Uh, there are a lot of stories of fans making the rounds, hitting several newsstands, pharmacies, and department stores to fill in the gaps of their collections. There's also stories of places that neglected to process their returns in a timely manner, and people would find years-old comics collecting dust behind a stack of Time magazines or in a back room somewhere. That must have been like uncovering a chest full of the shiniest gold. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, Enthusiasts would contact each other via the letter pages of comic books, and the first comic fanzines would appear around this time. We discussed all this a little bit in our Weird Comics History episodes about underground comics that are available in our archives, but we're going to get a little more into it here. And so, with all of this, an aftermarket is actually born. Yes. Now back to the uh, zines here. For, by most accounts, the first fanzine dedicated to comics was the EC Fan Bulletin, that was started by Bob Stewart in 1953. Uh, this period periodical was naturally about EC comics. Uh, perhaps the first fella to seriously collect comics was Jerry Bales. Now Jerry was born on June 26, 1933, in Kansas City, Missouri. He was a particularly avid fan of All-Star Comics and his premier super team, the Justice Society of America, of whom he was, quote, a fan since the first Justice Society adventure appeared in All-Star Comics number three, and that had a winter 1941 cover date. Uh, he included the cover date with that quote in case you would, uh, you know, question his yeah, fandom. Yeah, we, we didn't add that. That was no. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in 1953, Bales wrote to DC, care of editor Julius Schwartz, to inquire about issues of All-Star Comics. His letter was forwarded to former Justice Society writer Gardner Fox, and from Fox's reply on July 9, 1953, the two would start corresponding regularly. 
Bales was finally able to convince Fox in the early 19 in early 1959 to sell him Fox's personal bound copies. Wow. Of All-Star Comics number 1 through 24. I mean, it, this boggles the mind. It's wild. It's yeah. wild. Uh, in November 1960, a letter from a young comics fan and future comics creator Roy Thomas to Julius Schwartz similarly inquired about back issues to led, and that led to Schwartz also putting Thomas in contact with Gardner Fox. Fox informed Thomas that he had sold his bound volumes to a gent named Jerry Bales and put Thomas in touch with Bales, who was then living in Detroit. Bales and Thomas would go on. Bales and Thomas would go on to exchange hundred pages worth of letters in less than five months, starting from the end of November 1960, and forge a friendship with Tom, which, in Thomas's words, set in motion a chain of events which led to alter ego, organized comics fandom, the Alley Awards, and maybe a bit more. Alter ego is Jerry Bales' fanzine, the one one that celebrated comic books as a whole instead of those from one publisher. Though, truth be told, it did concentrate heavily on DC Comics and their superhero revival. Uh, it was founded by Jerry Bales in 1961 and later taken over by Roy Thomas. Ten issues were released through 1969 with issue of number 11 following nine years later in uh, 1978, I guess. In 1999, sure. following a five-issue run to the, uh, the previous years as a flipbook with comic book artist. Alter Ego began regularly by began regular bi-monthly publication as a formal magazine with glossy covers. That still comes out to this very day, and we read the heck out of it, folks. It's awesome. Uh, Tomorrow's Publishing is the owner of the magazine, and it's headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, Alter Ego also sponsored the Alley Awards. This is a series of comic book awards that lasted until the end of the 1960s. By the award's third year, the number of ballots received had become so overwhelming that Bales called for a fan get-together at which votes would be tabulated by group effort. This gathering of Midwestern fans held in March 1964 at Bales' Detroit, Michigan area home was dubbed the Alley Tally, and its success provided inspiration for the organization of comic book fan conventions that began soon afterward. Jerry Bales wasn't done with fanzines, however. Rocket's Blast Comic Collector was a comics advertising fanzine published from 1964 through 1983. It was a result of a merger with a similar publication. In 1961, Jerry Bales created the Comic Collector as, quote, a publication devoted primarily to the field rather than the occasional advertisement of comics for sale that appeared in the Fantasy Collector. Uh, After publishing the Comic Collector for a year, Bales passed it on to Ron Foss. Meanwhile, Miami-based comics and science fiction enthusiast G.B. Love had formed the Science Fiction and Comics Association and began publishing his own fanzine called The Rocket's Blast, and that debuted in 1961. In 1964, The Comic Collector and The Rocket's Blast merged to form The Rocket's Blast and The Comic Collector. Uh, We're going to guess it was for shared mailing list and cost considerations. Yeah, that's pretty much why the only reason these... uh... You know, organizations come come together Uh, But boy, that title just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? For Uh, a few minutes For a few minutes, yeah (laughs) (laughs) The first issue of this new publication was number 29 Continuing the numbering of the Rockets Blast And it was dated April 1964 By about number 50 in 1966 The name was shortened to Rockets Blast Comic Collector Started out as a photocopied fanzine And Rockets Blast Comic Collector eventually morphed into a full-on glossy magazine uh, its regular features included columns, articles, reviews, interviews, and cultural commentary, fan-generated art, 
a letter column titled Blasts from the Readers, and classified comic book ads. Cartoonist and comic collector Grass Green was an early and frequent contributor to Rocket's Blast comic collector, as was Raymond L. Miller, Don Newton, Joe Kubert, and Buddy Saunders. The last guy was later proprietor of the Lone Star Comics chain of comic book retailers. Contributing writers during this era included future Cerebus creator Dave Sim and science fiction author Howard Waldrop. Between issues number 25, published December 1963, and number 50, which came out in 1966, the zine's circulation grew from about 200 to over 1,100. By, Rocket by Rocket's Blast comic collector number 75, which came out in 1968, the circulation was 2,000. With issue number 100, 1973, the circulation hit 2,250, which I think is pretty impressive. Sure. Uh, Love published Rocket's Blast comic collector until 1974 when he moved from Miami to Houston, Texas. There he became involved with Star Trek fandom and co-produced Houston Con in 74 and 75. His last issue publishing was 113. That was published in 1974. After this, longtime contributor James Van Hees took over the publishing duties of Rocket's Blast comic collector. Van Hees introduced new features and columns to the zine, freshening its aesthetic for new audiences. But So the point of all this is... There was interest in this scene. It was growing, and people were drawing independent comics within it as well. Certainly. Now, when comic book collecting began in earnest, so did a retail market to support it. Uh, we're going to start with Victory Thrift. The first store to deal specifically in comic books, some say, was Robert Bell's Victory Thrift Shop in Sunnyside, Queens. Now, Robert himself was born in Sunnyside in 1943. His parents owned a thrift store called Victory Thrift that did robust business selling used paperbacks during the 1950s. Now, we'll, uh, we'll let Robert tell uh, some more from his story. This is from a 1996 interview with Comic Book Marketplace. He would say, My dad and mom owned a bookstore and thrift shop combination in Sunnyside. My dad used to sell comic books for three cents a piece and four for ten cents. They were back issues. He would buy them at a distrib from distributors in bundles of a hundred, and he would pay like a penny each and have to buy a hundred of each number. Of course, he couldn't sell a hundred, so we got stuck with about fifty. He didn't buy the new books. He only bought returns from distributors. The fifty copies or so that uh, they got stuck with were put in the basement of our store. So in time, you can imagine how many issues I accumulated. There were thousands of issues in that basement. I would say 10 to 20,000. There were even EC and Walt Disney comics, and of course DC comics, Superman, Batman, and all the rest. Marvel wasn't very big at the time. In fact, the pre-hero pre Marvels weren't very popular, and they were hard to get rid of. But the ECs sold really well. So he continues to say, uh, then one day somebody came to the shop and said they were looking for a particular issue of EC Comics and that they were willing to pay 25 cents each instead of 3 cents each. I thought they, I thought they were willing to pay a crazy price of 25 cents each. Wow. This is unbelievable. That was in the late 50s or early 60s. This guy and I spent half the day looking through all these books trying to find any ECs at a quarter each. Then more came to buy comics. Another guy wanted old Disney comics, and he was willing to pay 15 cents a piece. We thought they were nuts. <laughs> Robert did some hand-to-hand -hand business this way for about a year, and someone would give him a list of 10 books. He'd head into the basement to dig them out and charge the customer $2.50. Uh, Robert's father thought he was crazy to charge them so much, but Robert is adamant that they set the prices, not him. He continues to say, After about maybe a year or so, people started asking for certain back issues. I decided to take the time and rearrange all the books so I wouldn't have to look all day long for 10 issues. 
when I decided to put everything in order, it was really it was a really big job because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of issues. By this time, maybe 20, 30, 40,000 books easy. This is still in the late 50s and early 60s, and it probably took months to organize everything. I built the shelves, and I arranged everything so I could have everything in order. Then when somebody came in and said they wanted Walt Disney Comics and stories, I would go downstairs, and within five minutes, I'd come up with everything we had. So that's how it all started. Robert found the EC Comics were the most in demand, and people were willing to pay a dollar for them. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, books <laughs> books that sold for 10 cents less uh, uh, since 10 cents less than a decade before. Uh, in 1961, Robert's dad retired and Robert op- opened his own shop a few blocks away in Sunnyside, also named Victory Thrift. <laughs> not very creative the family, I guess. No. I don't know. <laughs> now, originally named in support of World War II Victory, now it signified the victory of the back issue hunt. Robert continues, he says, "In those days you could start your own business for 500 to a thousand dollars. It wasn't a lot of money in today's terms. It was still a pretty good sum back then, but it was still doable. The mailing address was Woodside, but the shop itself was considered Sunnyside. Back then I did as much business I did back then I did as much business in used paperback books as I did in comic books. I remember selling the first Playboy edition for a hundred dollars and thought it was an unbelievable amount of money. It was like fine to near mint copy. As the 1960s wore on, Victory Thrift went from being a used paperback store selling comic books to a full-fledged comic book-slash-magazine store selling only back issues. Jim Hanley, who would go on to own two massive comic book stores in New York, uh, New York known as Jim Hanley's Universe, said, It was the most amazing thing we'd ever seen. We went there in the elevated train to the store, and as we get there, there's a window, a display window, floor-to-ceiling comics. There was Action Comics, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Superman, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Marvel Mystery, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I mean, that's like something out of a dream, Chris. You know what I mean? Like something... That, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... I'm, I'm not even sure I could dream that. You would just be, you would just be fate dead away, you oh, know, to see yes. that. They, sitting in a window of all things, like, get that out of the window. You're the sun, it's going to bleach <laughs> the hell out of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Robert had customers from all around the country that would drop by Victory Thrift while they were visiting New York City. And to be clear, it's very unlikely that they stumbled upon Victory Thrift way off the beaten path in Queens. The word was obviously out about this place around the uh, country. So many customers wished that there was a place like Victory Thrift where they lived that Robert set up a mail order service. He says, I had customers coming from Virginia and Florida and elsewhere. They must have been tourists, but they would come into the store and buy a lot of books. They often said, gee, I wish I had a store like this in our hometown. So I suggested that they send me their want lists. This is really how the mail-order business got started. That was still in the early 60s. Initially, that was a small part of his business, but it grew quickly, and by the end of the decade, Robert was doing most of his comic sales through mail-order. There was also this uh, growing field of other mail-order comics dealers, and they started to get to know each other, and we'll talk about them very soon. Uh, Robert says, Howard Rogofsky used to come into my shop all the time, and he would have a want list with the amounts people would be willing to pay for certain issues. I would have a whole wall full of books, many on his list. He would just come in and say, I'll take that, and that, and that, and that. If my price was three to five bucks, Howard could double his money when he sold them. I would discount some depending on how much money Howard spent. Howard Rowatsky? Who, who, who that? We will get to him very soon, in like <laughs> seconds even. Uh, in 1969, Robert Bell brought, bought a house in Hopog. Hopog? How do we say that, Chris? Hopog. Hopog. Thank you very much, Long Island. <laughs> And uh, concentrated on b- building his mail-order business from there. 
started working out of one of his unused bedrooms, then after a year expanded into the dining room and living room. Robert was one of the earliest dealers to run ads in Marvel Comics. Longtime readers and collectors will instantly recognize these as the one with the terribly drawn Thor announcing the business. <laughs> it was basically Thor with a B on his helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had other well, really badly designs. drawn too. It wasn't like a good Thor, you know. It no, was... It, it was it was just uncopyright infringingly enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Thor. No, uh, he had other ad designs too, but this was definitely the best remembered. Uh, Robert would go also advertise his mail order business on the radio and in TV Guide. Wow. Which, huge. It is huge, Huge yeah. stuff. Uh, now, one gimmick he employed was bell dollars. These are coupons that look like dollar bills, but with Robert's teenage face on them. <laughs> Regular customers could redeem these for discounts, and they would call the, these uh, the much more alliterative Bell bucks. Yeah, I don't know why he didn't call them that. Why, I, I know what a what a missed opportunity. <laughs> uh, the bill, the I'm sorry, the bell dollars, not the or the dollar bells. They could have been. <laughs> yeah, you got a right? good one. Yep. Took me two seconds. <laughs> uh, now they, they were signed by Robert as president and Dottie Bell as secretary, and we'll guess that that's his sister. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, around 1978, Robert would move to Florida, and he'd run his business out of a 500. 1,500-square-foot warehouse. In 1981, he moved to a 2,500-square-foot warehouse. Uh, Around 1986, he sold the business to Gary Dolgoff and moved into into developing commercial real estate. Robert's biggest regret is letting go of a full set of Marvel Comics to a private collector around 1980. He says, if I had that collection today, I bet it would be worth $20 million. I had four kids. The kids couldn't eat comic books. They needed food. I mean, a full set. I mean, is he talking from like Marvel Tales until from 1980? Yeah, yeah, like oh, wow. Good gosh. Uh, but before Robert Bell placed his first ads in Marvel Comics, Howard Rogowski was already on the scene and in their ad space. Also known as Howard Ripoffski by some of his customers, he was around the same age as Bell and also grew up in Queens. He started selling back issues at a very early age. In an interview in Comic Book Marketplace number 18 from 1992, Howard said, One of the earliest large buys was when I was 16 years old. I traveled all the way from Ohio, about 50, 550 miles, to buy some comics. I paid for them with my father's post-dated checks of $100 each. Every 10 days a check was cashed, and I'd give my father the money to cover it from comic sales. I was lucky in that I never had any problems with my parents saying, you shouldn't be bothered with comic books. They were always very supportive. Rogowski made some great money doing this and claims that at age 18, I grossed about $15,000 that year. The following year, I grossed $60,000. And we're talking 1960s prices, too. And $60,000 would be about $450,000 today. Think about collecting that at age 18. Imagine. <clears throat> Rogowski is considered comics' full-time dealer, first full-time dealer, because Robert Bell still did business in paperbacks and other antiquities early on. Uh, he explained, when I started, everyone else had a regular job. I was a student who went into business. I was, at one time, the largest dealer around until comic shops started opening up. Now, the very first of those dedicated shops in America was the San Francisco Comic Book Company, opened by Gary Arlington in San Francisco's Mission District in 1968. Gary Edson Arlington was born on October 7, 1938, in San Jose, California. In an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, Gary's early life was described thusly. The fascination with comic books began when Arlington was six years old. 
His father, who worked at a lumberyard in Hayward, stopped at a store on Fruitville Avenue in Oakland and bought 10 comic books. There were funny-looking animals, men who looked like melting monsters, and women who were distressed and barely dressed. I remember the funny animals, he said, and I remember my mother taking me to, to a theater where I saw an animated Superman. My mother was really good to me. In 1968, Arlington was down on his luck, penniless, and essentially homeless. The closure of his parents' house uh, forced him to sell his extensive personal comics collection, which included many rare comics from the era's golden age, as well as uh, a trove of EC comics. He used this money to open San Francisco Comic Book Company, which printed underground comics as well as operating as a retail outlet itself. Employees at Arlington's store included Simon Deitch, Rory Hayes, and Flo Steinberg. Arlington also published some uh, important early underground titles, including the first two issues of Robert Crumb's Mr. Natural, and published a number of experimental mini-comics by Art Spiegelman. Uh, We'll come back to this outfit and scene a little later on. This store was preceded by one that opened in 1966, however, in Toronto. I uh, just got to mention this, Making Memory uh, this is Memory Lane is the name of it, the first comic store in North America. Uh, a little bit outside this episode about the direct market, but just for the sake of completion, Captain George Henderson was born in Montreal early in the 20th century. He devoured comic books and movies during a childhood spent bouncing among foster homes. He spent 12 years in the military, where we can only assume he rose to the rank of captain. <laughs> After his discharge from a 12-year stint in the Army, Henderson wrote dirty romance novels for $750 apiece. In the early 1960s, he started reprinting classic comic strips in booklet form and selling them for 25 cents each, something the uh, comic strip syndicators and creators didn't think was so swell since he'd never asked them whether he could do that. <laughs> in 1967, the captain established Memory Lane, a store on Markham Street in Toronto's downtown. In an April 1969 article in McLean's, a Canadian magazine, they explained at 39 he is Canada's king of camp and an ardent comic collector who got that way by chance three years ago when he whimsically decorated his bookstore with old comic books he had found in his sister's basement. A man came in and picked up Batman from the display and peeled off five $20 bills from his money clip. I immediately closed the store and went down to the States to find out what the business was all about. Now he's selling 15,000 used comic books a month, including surprising quantities to newly hooked youngsters. Uh, This store was in a prime location for comic books and pop culture ephemera, and a full episode could definitely be done on the fascinating life of Captain George Henderson and his many adventures. However, since the direct market didn't really affect Canada until the 80s in any big way, uh, we're going to put a pin in this here and just move it along to something else. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, one of the bigger retailers, perhaps one of the biggest, uh, Mile High Comics, uh, owned uh, by Chuck Rizansky. Talk a little bit about Chuck. He was born March 11, 1955, in Goldbach, Bavaria, Germany. He moved to the U.S. with his mom and stepdad, a U.S. military officer. He began selling old comics out of his parents' basement in Colorado in 1969, when he was 13 years old, through early fanzine Rocket Blast comic collector. The following year, he began promoting comics as as the youngest seller ever to exhibit at the Colorado Springs Antiques Market. In 1971, he founded the Colorado Springs Comics Club. The following year, he attended his first national comics convention that was Multicon in Oklahoma City. There, he sold $1,800 worth of comics in three days, 
which, uh, to put that in perspective, is about $11,149.33 today. No. Not not bad scratch for people. Not right? at all, boy. Whoa. <laughs> now, he opened his first store in Boulder, Colorado in 1974, and he named it Mile High Comics. He did so with $800 in cash and 10,000 comics. Now, the Mile High and Mile High Comics refers to Denver, Colorado, which is known as the Mile High City because it's exactly one mile, that is 5,280 feet above sea level. Uh, by 1977, he'd expanded to four stores in the greater Denver area, and in December of that year, he purchased the Edgar Church Collection, the largest and highest quality Golden Age comics collection ever discovered. The cachet had been preserved due to the unvarying 60-degree temperature and minimal humidity. It consisted of 16,000 comic books dating from 1937 to 1955. Wow. This included the first Superman comics, Action Comics number 1, June 1938 cover, and the first Marvel comic, which was Marvel Comics number 1, October 1940. The purchase of the Church Collection helped Mile High Comics expand its influence nationally and helped raise the price of rare comic books, which now became a legitimate investment. Rosansky once sold a batch of comics from the Church Collection and used the profits to put down payment on a 22,000-square-foot warehouse. Uh, 22,000 square feet, that's like a school. Yeah. Massive. In 1979, Rosansky published uh, Richard Alf Comics Mail Order Division, and with, with which he gained systems for expanding his own mail order sales. Mm. Hop back to the underground here. Beginning in the 1960s, many artists began creating their own comics and distributing them to uh, hippie boutiques and head shops around the country. And we do go into greater detail on this uh, for Weird Comics History. Uh, our Weird Comics History series on Underground Comics, and that ran in episodes 12 through 16, available in the archives. Now, these comics weren't quite comics code-approved material, uh, nor were they ever submitted to be approved. No. But, the, uh, <laughs> but the people who made and bought them were dyed-in-the-wool comics fans. The Los Angeles Free Press founded the Underground Press Syndicate, sharing creative and distribution resources with 600 underground and student newspapers across the United States. Gary Arlington, San Francisco comic book company, used this distribution system uh, eagerly to move their uh, underground comics, as well as plenty of other underground comics publishers. So they've started up their own direct market, in a sense, for the underground scene. Uh, Bud Plant, born 1952 in San Jose, California, uh, through his high school years, Plant was bought and sold back-issue comic books through ads and fanzines such as Rocket's Blast Comic Collector. He and five of his friends opened a store in San Francisco, which was called Seven Sons Comic Shop, in 1968. He was 16 years old. Uh, the friends were John Barrett, Jim Buser, Mike Nolan, Frank Scadina, and Tom Talman. It did so well, they sold it within a year and opened with three partners a new shop called Comic World. The other guys were John Barnett, Jim Buser, and a 15-year-old comics enthusiast named Dick Swan. These are all kids doing this. This is the amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, in 1970, Plant founded Bud Plant Incorporated as a mail-order company specializing in underground comics. So now, having a retail comic shop and a mail-order business is the typical comics business model. Certainly. We're going to introduce you to a, a name you probably will recognize here, uh, Robert M. Overstreet. He was born in West Virginia and grew up in southeast Tennessee. 
He collected comic books, fossils, mineral specimens, and Indian relics, and became a serious comic book collector in 1952, buying the popular EC Comics off the newsstand. He continued to seek back issues over the decades ahead to uh, complete his, his uh, runs on, on, on certain titles. In the 1960s, his first book project was a price guide on Indian arrowheads. Uh, but during this time, the comic book market was booming, with prices going up every year. And there already existed Arrowhead price guides. Now, since the relic market was stable, he decided to shelve the Arrowhead guide and then begin researching a price guide for comic books. Now, he would pattern this book on a definitive coin collecting guide. That's Yeoman's Red Book. And that began publishing in 1947 and is currently in its 62nd edition. I'm sorry, 72nd edition. Uh, beginning in the mid-1960s, Overstreet worked for the Woodlands Division of Bowater Southern Paper Corps uh, that was located in Calhoun, Tennessee, where he was their statistician, librarian, and head of their map department, where he drew all the company maps. With his years of drawing maps, cataloging technical publications, and compiling statistical documents, he was well prepared to compile a price guide on comic books. Now, Jerry Bales, who had recently published The Collector's Guide to the First Heroic Age, was considering creating a comic book price guide at the same time. He was contacted by Overstreet, and Bales' extensive notes supplemented by Overstreet's study of dealer listings became a backbone to the Overstreet comic book price guide. Under the name Overstreet Publications, the first comic book price guide was published November 1970. Cost $5 and saddle stitched and published in a print run of 1,000. A second edition of 800 was released subsequently, and this also sold out. The book included 218 pages of listings. Among other things, Overstreet's Guide included inventory lists, and it instantly became an invaluable resource tool for comic book collectors and dealers. By 1976, the guide had achieved national distribution. An early decision was made by the author to exclude the niche of underground comics, a genre Mr. Overstreet had no interest in documenting for reasons he's never made public, and I think they still don't cover that stuff. I don't think uh, so. This, it's kind of tough to do, though, because the, the documentation's not great for those books. Certainly. Uh, the book is currently in its 47th edition, though Overstreet has gone on to concentrate on Indian arrowheads and other relics. Now remember, all of what we've mentioned so far is about comics bought either from a newsstand, a thrift store, or from a mail-order back-issue retailer like Rogofsky or Centaur Comics. Enter Phil Suling. Phil Nicholas Suling was born on January 20th, 1934 in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. In 1958, he and a colleague began buying and selling back-issue comic books uh, through his through his, uh, though his primary career was as an English teacher in Brooklyn's Lafayette High School. Phil realized this could be a lucrative business and not just a side hustle. So in 1962, when he noticed that issues of Amazing Fantasy 15, which is the first appearance of Spider-Man, were selling for two and three times the cover price a few months after publication. <laughs> he and his friends bought cartons of Amazing Spider-Man number one. Uh, we'll say that it's the March 1963 edition since there have been about 15 of those by now. Uh -huh. uh, this is the first Amazing Spider-Man number right, one. Right, right. It's and, volume uh, one. <laughs> yes. They were able to sell them less than a year later for $1 or $2 per issue. Uh, not had a, for an issue... Not, Not bad. bad for an initial uh, investment of under 12 cents an issue. That's 10 wow. to 20 times uh, of, of a return on your investment. It is unbelievable, really. Uh, so And quite rapidly, too, just waiting a Certainly. year. Certainly. So in 1968, Suling staged the first international convention of comic art holding it at New York City's Statler Hilton Hotel. 
He held another comic convention at the hotel the following year, launching the New York Comic Art Convention series. This was the first time many serious comic book collectors met each other face-to-face, not to mention meeting the creators. There was a fan-made New York comic convention in 1964, and this is officially the first one, but Phil's convention was on a much grander scale uh, and much more official, though still nothing compared to what we see today with comic conventions. Certainly, certainly. And, uh, like, Frederick Wortham even appeared at one of them, didn't That's he? That's right, he did. We talked uh, about that briefly back that's in right. the day. That's right, I think yeah. at 1970 he appeared at one. I think so, yeah. Now, sensing a market, Phil Sewling approached Marvel in 1972, uh, probably meeting with Roy Thomas, uh, to talk about getting comics straight from a new distribution center in Indiana, cutting out the middleman at a deep discount, uh, with the promise that there was uh, there would be no returns on these comics, you know, so straight through... Deep discount, no returns, and he was laughed out of the office. (laughs) (laughs) Undeterred, Phil walked across the street to DC Comics, and he pitched the same idea to then-President Carmine Infantino. Carmine loved the idea. Seeing no real downside, uh, we'd like to imagine that the pupils of his eyes, like, literally turned into dollar signs, like like in a cartoon. A a cashmere as a drawer came out of his mouth. He was just like, oh, okay, you're just going to— You can't return them? You're going to just give me money then. Okay, then there's no (laughs) risk. Uh, So now, having secured DC and then Archie and then Warren, Marvel followed suit, and so in 1972, Phil was able to open— Seagate Distributors, which was named after the neighborhood in Brooklyn where Phil lived as an adult. Phil would take orders and prepayment from comics fans, then send those to comics publishers who would actually ship these comics directly to the customers. Phil didn't even need to handle warehouse inventory. He didn't need to do that. (laughs) The the minimum order was five issues. And this went hand-in-hand with the growing number of comic book shops around the country, for instance, as we mentioned, Bud Plant's Comic World. Yeah, uh, Plant had met direct market pioneer Phil Suling on the convention circuit. And in late 1973, Suling called Plant to inform him that he had just cut a deal to ship comic books from a new distribution center in Sparta, Illinois. Suling offered the West Coast region to Plant, but Plant turned him down, preferring then to concentrate on the underground comics market. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Suling would eventually uh, contract a, to uh, sub-regional distributors in 1977 or, or 78, perhaps, and they would buy product at a 50% discount. This reduced Suling's paperwork and enabled the sub-distributors to sell smaller orders than Seagate's minimum of five copies of each comic book title. Uh, for example, we got shortly after the Seagate distributors got up and going, Marvel cut a similar deal with Great Lakes area distributor Donahoe Brothers, also known as Comic Center Enterprises. Owned and operated by Tim Donahoe in his mid-twenties at the time, other publishers followed suit and inked deals with Tim Donahoe. Convention retailer Jim Friel, and one of the Donahoe, Donahoe Brothers' first hires, said this about Tim Donahoe. Some people distrusted him on site, including my wife. I just thought of him as a smooth guy who was probably okay. Her perception was more accurate than mine. Jim Friel remembers that the first shipment of comics went out on ni- in 1974, and one of them was Marvel Superstars number 1, and then had a cover date of May. About a year later, Jim was working in the warehouse when he got a phone call from Carmine Infantino. He asked to speak to Tim, who wasn't there, so Carmine said, Well, you tell that son of a bench I'm going to come out there and padlock his fork in warehouse. (laughs) Uh, Tim had been collecting money from his retailers, 
However, neglected to pay the publishers. Oops. <laughs> uh, minor oversight. Yeah. Uh, now, Friel would recall, it was a deal Carmine made personally, and he felt betrayed personally. Feels terrible to have one of your artistic idols yell at you like that. It was Carmine Infantino, for God's sake. Uh, Jim confronted Tim about this later that day, and uh, Tim essentially admitted it with a shrug. <laughs> Donahoe Brothers was out of business by the end of the month. Right, so that that's an example of uh, a kid that didn't do well. But it, it really illustrates, yeah. though, like, this scene was still a lot of kids, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Tom Donahoe is, is 20, this other guy's 15, 16. These are all, these aren't, you know, people that went to business school. These are just mm-hmm. comics fans, just... Now, the whole thing is in its infancy, literally and figuratively. Truly, yeah. Uh, but here's here's one that uh, didn't screw around too much. Big Rapids uh, Distribution was founded as a Detroit area cooperative around 1970 as the Keep On Trucking Co-op. They eventually changed their name when they moved their headquarters to Big Rapids, Michigan, but retained their co-op structure. They specialized in underground comics and radical literature and were directly responsible for these works' strong penetration in Detroit during the 1970s. Many of these publications got mainstream newsstand distribution through Big Rapids. In, 19, in early 1975, Big Rapids purchased assets of the bankrupt Donahoe Brothers. Up to that point, Big Rapids had bought its mainstream comics from the Donahoe Brothers. Uh, moving their headquarters back to Detroit, Big Rapids was aggressive, often taking over the businesses of customers who ran up large debts. At its height, Big Rapids was functioning as an alternative independent distributor in the Detroit and central southern Michigan areas, selling a full line of magazines and paperbacks as well as comics. In just a few years, Big Rapids acquired the comic distributor run by Jim Friel, Isis News of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Nova Distributors of Los Angeles, California, Well News Company of Columbus, Ohio, and the Wisconsin Independent News Distributors, WIND Wind. Uh, We'll be hearing more about this last company a little bit later on. In 1980, despite being the largest of many distributors in the direct market, Big Rapids went bankrupt and their assets were liquidated. And we'll find out uh, what happened to Big Rapids later on in the episode. Big Rapids. I I said rabbits. (laughs) Funny. No, Big Rapids (laughs) later on in the episode. But for now, we'll head west and see what's happening in comics during the 1970s. We'll talk about Pacific Comics. In 1971, the Shanes brothers, Steve Shanes, age 17, and Bill Shanes, age 13, co-founded Pacific Comics. More youngsters. Together they make a 30-year-old, so that's something. (laughs) They do. It started out as a mail-order company, selling to customers uh, via ads in the Comics Buyer's Guide. This led to advertisements inside some Marvel comics and ultimately to uh, some tangible retail stores. The first Pacific Comics store opened in Pacific Beach, California in 1974. Business was so brisk that the brothers realized they couldn't get merchandise for the stores, and so set up a distribution system which was soon supplying neighborhood stores as well. By the late 1970s, comics were selling well, and Pacific expanded its distribution system nationwide. They raised $200,000 by closing its four San Diego retail locations and selling off inventory rising rapidly to the top of this new distribution system. In the six years between 1974 and 1980, comic or fantasy-related specialty shops rose from numbering 200 to 300 to around 1,500, while Pacific was operating out of a a 2,200-square-foot office warehouse in Kearney Mesa with 500 wholesale accounts. According to elder brother Steve, the company grossed just under a million dollars that year, soon doubling its floor space. 
1979, Pacific dipped its feet into publishing when they released Warriors of Shadow Realm, a John Buscema portfolio of six signed colored plates. This was meant to accompany a Doug Munch and Buscema three-issue Weird World epic fantasy tale, which ran in Marvel Comics Super Special number 11 through 13, covered dates June through October 1979. In 1981, rival distributor Capital City launched a black-and-white title, Nexus, and distributed through, through their own system. We'll talk about them more in a few. Uh, the Shanes brothers took note and decided to follow suit, even though they were still paying off debt from a $300,000 bank loan taken out in 1979 at 25% interest. Steve, who with a degree in sculpture and had a background in art, handled negotiations with creators while Bill took on the business and accounting end. The brothers turned to Jack Kirby. Steve Shanes recalled, I figured if you want to get people's attention with a new comic book, who better to do it than the king of comics, Jack Kirby? We were already friends with Jack. We used to send him free copies of comics he'd drawn for other publishers because they never sent him any. So I just went ahead and called him on the phone, and he turned out to be a nice guy, completely accessible. We negotiated a whole detailed publishing deal between the two of us. No middlemen. The Shanes brothers asked Kirby, Kirby, who had effectively quit comics in 1977, for only the publishing rights, assuring him that he could keep full ownership and copyrights. And they would even help him license characters for use overseas and in other media. Thus, Pacific claims to have been the, become the first company to pay royalty payments to Jack Kirby. Uh, he provided Pacific with Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. This was published bi-monthly from August 1981 and had 14 issues, including a special, lasting until 1984. Though the Shanes brothers anticipated sales of less than 25,000, the first issue sold 110,000 copies. Kirby then let Pacific publish his Silver Star, and the brothers decided to start a line of full-color mainstream comic books. This is six issues, all in 1983. Before long, Pacific had attracted interest from other comics professionals, including Mike Grell, who had planned his Star Slayer series to appear from D.C. But uh, after it dropped from the schedule, the Shanes brothers approached Grell about publishing it. Another invitee was then-aspiring artist Dave Stevens, who uh, purchased comics from Pacific's shop and had met the brothers at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1981. When Star Slayer number 2, April 1982 cover date, came up short a few pages, Stevens was approached to fill in the remaining pages and ultimately came up with The Rocketeer. Wow. Hmm. Uh, in 1983, Pacific upgraded to paper with higher quality, uh, with higher quality inks. Pacific's innovations in creator-owned properties and high-quality printings were soon imitated by industry leaders DC and Marvel Comics. Pacific continued to distribute and publish comics, running both operations from a San Diego warehouse, to which they'd moved in July 1982. They also purchased a firehouse in Steelville, Illinois, and converted it to a distribution hub. They was also operating warehouses in L.A. and Phoenix at the time. So they're spread a little thin. Pr- mm-hmm. Printing about 500,000 comic books every month, the Shane brothers employed around 40 people at their San Diego operation alone, and were grossing over $3.5 million per annum. The brothers hired their father, Stephen E. Shanes, as financial vice president, and their mother, Christine Mara, as an as office manager. Elder brother Paul Pablo worked in the financial records department, and sister Chris, an L.A.-based attorney, provided counsel on legal affairs. 
it was a whole family scene. And, you know, mm-hmm. I would always say you should always get family as involved in business as possible. Oh, it's a recipe for it's, it's great success. Great success yes. and happiness. And uh, wonderful uh, family get-togethers <laughs> for many for years sure, to come. For sure, for sure. Uh, Pacific's published output contained editorials by David Scroggie, who had started as a comics retailer in 1975 and risen to general manager of Pacific's four San Diego shops by the late 1970s. He helped to bring the reclusive Steve Ditko to Pacific. Ditko's specific offering, Missing Man, was previewed in Captain Victory number 6, November 1981, cover date, and then featured in issues of Pacific Presents, and his work was scripted by Mark Evanier. Meanwhile, Pacific published a magazine-sized black-and-white reprint of Raj 2000 stories that John Byrne had done in the 70s for Charlton Comics, as well as a number of titles under its parent company, Blue Dolphin Enterprises. Pacific also welcomed Bruce Jones to the company and Sergio Aragonis and Mark Avanier's Grew the Wanderer. By uh, 1984, Steve Shaines decided to bring back 3D to comics, and this was a uh, fleeting trend in the 50s that had been stymied by uh, poor printing separations. Ray Zone was hired to do the production after he had successfully converted a Kirby image for Honeycomb Serial. Steve Shaines decided the 3D book would be Alien Worlds 3D, featuring their first published work uh, of uh, Art Adams alongside uh, John Bolton, Bill Ray, and others. Sales on the expensively produced comic, however, were poor, and sales all around began following suit. Hmm. One-shots became more common, and tolerable sales on Elric of Melnibone... Mel Nabone even stumbled when First Comics acquired the rights, putting Pacific in the awkward position of continuing continuing as a distributor on a comic from a rival publisher that they had helped promote. After organizational difficulties pushed back the release of Star Slayer by several months, Mike Grell decided to take his creator-owned property to First Comics. A domino effect occurred as the loss of a high-profile title to a rival publisher engendered bad industry PR, leading other creators to lose faith in Pacific. More importantly, the distribution arm of Pacific was suffering serious problems, due in part to an overly generous credit extensions to retailers, which were not paid back as quickly as expected. Steve Shaines explained, Most of our comic books still made money hand over fist, but there was a big problem in distribution. We extended too much credit to retailers who didn't pay us on a timely basis, and we were already working on a minuscule profit margin, maybe 5% to 8%. We didn't push hard enough to get the money from receivables, who owed us hundreds and thousands of dollars. If you had to boil down the single biggest reasons we blew it, that would be our poor cash management on the distribution side. Yeah, whenever you're working with razor-thin margins, it's always good to to expand the business as, right. as far and wide uh, as possible. Probably, you know, maybe you better reduce the square footage of some of those uh, warehouses there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, we're going to meet the Schusters, and not that Schuster. Uh, we have uh, Al Schuster, his father, Irwin, and his brother, Jack. They formed the paper distribution company Ear Jacks Enterprises, which is a play on the names Irwin and Jack. They were based out of Rockville, Maryland in the uh, 1970s. After Phil Sewling established the direct market, his company, Seagate Distributors, maintained a virtual monopoly on comic book distribution. Until a lawsuit brought on by Earjax in 1978. Earjax sued the comic book publishers DC, Marvel, Archie, and Warren for their anti-competitive arrangement with Seagate. As a result of the lawsuit, Earjax... 
Earjax, no earjax, earwax, uh, gain, yeah. <laughs> earwax. Yeah. They uh, would gain a sizable chunk of the direct distribution market, with distribution centers in Boston and Tampa. Uh, the Boston area division was known as Solar Space. I'm sorry, Solar Spice and Liquid. <laughs> Solar Spice and Liquors, yeah, named after a fictional corporation created by the science fiction writer Powell Anderson. Uh, meanwhile, Baltimore, just Baltimore retailer Steve Geppi had four comic book stores and was acting as a sub-distributor, uh, quote, doing a little informal distributing for smaller retailers. Uh, by 1981, Geppi was one of New Media slash Earjax's uh, biggest accounts. And uh, we'll get back to him and what happened to New Media slash Earjax. But uh, first, let's finally talk about... Capital City Distribution. Uh, in the 1970s, Milton Griep and John Davis were running a small Madison-based distributor called Wisconsin Independent News Distributors, or WIND, remember them. Mm-hmm. They went bankrupt in the late 1970s, and their assets, like we said, were snapped up by Big Rapids Distribution. In 1980, they turned the tables and bought the newly bankrupt Big Rapids assets from Capital to form Capital City Distribution, so turnabout is fair play. Uh, one of Capital City's first acts was to utilize the personnel of another former Big Rapids acquisition, Well News Company, to become the nucleus of an early distribution branch. In 1982, Capital City acquired the Berkeley, California-based Common Ground Distributors, which had been started up by Robert Beerbohm in the late 1970s and had been initially supplied by Big Rapids Distribution. Robert Beerbrom was another well-known figure in comics fandom who first connected with other fans in a comic book letter column called Trade Corner in Blackhawk number 225, October 1966 cover date. He sold vintage comics and nostalgia, first through Rocket Blast Comic Collector, and then through comic book mail order, and later through his own San Francisco comic shop, Best of Two Worlds. Beerbohm was also an early attendee of the first comic conventions in the late 1960s, lived with Bud Plant, and with Plant founded the underground comics publisher Comics and Comics in San Francisco. It reads better than it says. Uh, If we could reasonably profile every comics fan of the period, Beerbohm would certainly get more time. He's a well-respected comics historian, and his writings can be seen in the usual publications. Unfortunately... We've got to get back to Capital City (laughs) Distribution. Uh, So Capital City's Wisconsin location was relatively near World Color Press's main printing plant in Sparta, Illinois. During that period, World Color printed most American comic books, including those of Marvel and DC, and this made shipping to their, their warehouse cheaper, naturally. By 1982, Capital City operated out of a large warehouse in Madison that they shared with their largest account, mail order retailer Westfield Comics. And let's take a little detour over to another distributor making its way in this weird industry. Yeah, we're getting really obscure here. We're going to talk about uh, Diamond Distribution. <laughs> now, uh, Baltimore-based comics retailer Steve Geppi, as we mentioned, was one of Earjax's distribu- Earjax distributors' biggest accounts. In late 1981, the company, now known as New Media Distribution, or New Media slash Earjax, filed for bankruptcy protection. One of the last loyal companies when uh, New Media began having fiscal difficulties was... Geppi, and he made a deal with Hal Schuster. He says, the owner was going into retail, so Geppi agreed to provide Schuster with free books for a period of time in return for his account list. When Hal Schuster relocated to Florida early in 1982, he asked Geppi to service more accounts for a bigger discount, thereby effectively selling Geppi the distribution end of his business. Geppi immediately founded Diamond Comics Distributors. 
He named his new company Diamond after the imprint Marvel Comics used on non-returnable comics. And although the publisher discontinued the symbol months, months later, the name would remain. In what Mile High Comics' Chuck Rosansky describes as, the, as an incredibly risky and gutsy move, Geppi took over New Media slash Earjax's office and warehouse space, and, recalls Rosansky, he had to sort out the good customers from the bad overnight. He negotiated with creditors to continue Schuster's distribution business as Diamond Comic Distribution. Almost overnight, noted Rosansky, he went from being a retailer in Baltimore to having warehouses all over the place. <laughs> uh, Diamond grew an average of 40% a year as the comics retail took off. In 1983, Diamond hired an accounting firm, and in 1985, hired uh, certified public accountant Chuck Parker as Diamond's first controller. In a 1994 article in Success Magazine, Diamond employee Mark Herr noted that this move was Geppi's best decision, as Parker cares nothing about the comics. To him, it's dollars and cents, which is probably smart. (laughs) Uh, Parker describes his role as smoothing the emotion out of some decisions. Steve was a visionary and a risk taker, and I tend to be more conservative. Diamond brought out many other distribution companies, uh, bought out many other distribution companies since. Uh, Many fans with little experience started rival distribution companies only to find they were in over their heads, which allowed Geppi to buy out the smart ones uh, or pick up the pieces after the stupid ones went out of business. That's all according to uh, her, to Mark Her. Yeah. Uh, Now, Marvel and DC did play their part in hastening the demise of some distributors. Uh, Really began with that anti-monopoly lawsuit brought by new media Earjax in 1978. Earjack sued DC, Marvel, Archie, as we said, and Warren for their anti-competitive re- arrangement with uh, Phil Suling Seagate distributors. And as a result of the suit, Earjacks eventually acquired a sizable chunk of that direct distribution market. Around that time, Marvel and DC Comics provided trade terms favorable for larger distributors with efficient freight systems, which were effectively Capital City and Diamond. And they hastened the demise of smaller distributors in this way. Uh, Phil Suling himself died of a rare liver disease on August 21st, 1984, and Seagate distributors went out of business the following year. Bud Plant and Capital City opened an ex- expanded facility, facility in Seagate's old space in Sparta alongside Pacific Comics Printing Plant. Now, speaking of them, uh, Pacific found themselves uh, distributing competitors' titles, including those of Kitchen Sink Press, Last Gasp, and uh, Ripoff Press. With this in mind, other publishers feared that having Pacific, a rival publisher, as their distributor could result in their being cut off from comic shops. This played a factor in the multiple alternative distributors who came into being to compete with Pacific, until nearly a quarter of Pacific's comic shop accounts defected to alternate distributors in 1984. They skipped out on paying Pacific for upwards of three months' worth of comic books, too. Uh, Now, Pacific and parent company Blue Dolphin Enterprises found themselves the target of lawsuits, including some dealing with foreign rights and royalties for Pacific-published creator-owned titles. In August 1984, with the company $740,000 in debt, the Shanes brothers informed their staff that they would be out of work by September. According to Steve Shanes, Pacific's publishing arm was still seeing profit at the time of the closure, but it was outweighed by the losses of the distribution arm, and he and his brother lacked the business expertise to cope with this. After the 1984 collapse of Pacific, many of its creator-owned publications moved to Eclipse Comics. Bruce Jones' Twisted Tales, Alien Worlds, and Somerset Holmes. Dave Stevens' Rocketeer special and a one-shot of Mark Evanier and Sergio Aragones' Rue the Wanderer. 
Steve Shanes and his wife Ann Farah subsequently founded Blackthorn Publishing, and Bill Shanes found employment with Diamond Comic Distributors. As Pacific went into liquidation on, in September 1984, their distribution centers and warehouses were published, purchased by Bud Plant Incorporated and Capital City Distribution. The same year, Milton Griep was named CEO of Capital City, and also the same year, Capital City opened their Sparta, Illinois warehouse near World Color Printing that I bet was very similar to Wynn's uh, warehouse that was near the same printing plant. Do you think probably the same place or what? Maybe. (laughs) Now, after making $19 million in sales in 1987, Diamond bought Bud Plant's business in 1988 and went nationwide. By 1988, Capital City and its main surviving rival, Diamond Comics Distributors, had control of at least 70% of the comics distribution market between them. And, oh, uh, you know, the, the comics market was uh, might have been really heating up in 1988. Oh, yes. The story is only about to get even crazier from here, folks. Yes. But we're going to put a pin in it for this episode. We took you all the way from uh, the late 19th century to the end of the 20th century. So we'd let you digest all that for a minute. <laughs> Uh, if you have any uh, comments, questions, corrections, or anything you want to talk to us about, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. Find us on Tumblr, cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com, where we review newer DC Comics books. Or you go to Chris's personal blog, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, and you are doing some real classics lately that I'm loving. Uh, <laughs> definitely check that out. Uh, you can find the show site, WeirdComicsHistory.blogspot.com, where you can find a chronological listing of all of our series, uh, Cosmic Treadmill and, of course, Weird Comics History. That's right. Um, and our show notes, our links, our images, all that good stuff. Yeah, we'll probably find some things to dump in there for this episode, so be sure sure. to give give that a look. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? I I think think we took him as far as we need to before things get really, really maddening. Get really maddening, and I warn you, they get much more complicated. So if you you had to take notes for this episode, you're going to be in the same place in the next one. But uh, (laughs) I hope it wasn't too much, folks. Until next time, I want you to keep it weird historically. See ya.